Welcome to Inside the Labyrinth Podcast. This is one of your co-hosts speaking, Frank. I am an active New York City police officer, and I'm part of Reps for Responders. I've had the honor and privilege to journey through the labyrinth with my other host, Jay, the real Jumpman Jay on Instagram. He's a veteran officer and also part of the SWAT team in one of the cities in New York. We would just like to thank you for journeying through the labyrinth with some of the great guests that we have had on the show so far. We will continue to make episodes with all the positive feedback that we have received. If anyone has any idea, topic, or anyone we would like to interview, please email us at repsforresponders at gmail.com. Reps for Responders is a nonprofit out of Rockland County, New York. We provide free open gym for all active, retired, and volunteer first responders, military, and veteran. Reps for Responders also has a weekly Zoom meeting, which is a support group every Sunday at 7 p.m. to let first responders and military let off steam or talk about anything that they want to talk about, positive, negative, or anything they're struggling with. Reps for Responders has five certified recovery coaches through New York State to help battle addiction and alcoholism. If anyone is struggling, please don't be afraid to reach out to Reps for Responders. You can find us on Instagram at reps underscore four underscore responders or visit our website at repsforresponders.org. Again, from myself and Jay, personally, we thank you. As a recovering alcoholic, I would like to personally thank you because you have kept me sober just for today. All in and have a great day. back season three inside the Lavin podcast with yours truly the real Jumpman jay and my boy frankie v what's going on kid yo yo yo! how you doing how you doing welcome back how you going kid i heard a little mix up at the end of the beat there were you trying to tune it up a little bit just a little bit you know gotta go and switch things up uh, keep people on their toes a little how you doing never hurts um <laughs> yeah you're in season three episode four of Inside the Labyrinth podcast. So uh, episode three was with Jess, an uh, officer with the NYPD. So that one, uh, especially if you are looking for a journey of what the NYPD um, can bring to the table and how you get to a different unit um, and someone who's really dedicated in the lifting, definitely check that episode out. But before we start the episode and the podcast today and we introduce our guests, I just want to give a, a quick moment of silence for the officer that uh, lost his life with the NYPD um, last week um, due to suicide. That's the fourth uh, that we have this year with the NYPD. Unfortunately, we had 12 last year, 228 police suicides last year, and we are, I think, over 50-something this year in 2020, maybe close to 60. So just a quick moment of silence. All righty. Thank you for that. Prayers up. Prayers for everyone. Every first responder out there across the country, men and women in blue, red, 
green, whatever you're wearing. Thank you for your service. And speaking of that, we have a detective with us today within the NYPD, so I'm hyped. Uh, he is, uh, I'll let him introduce himself and uh, we'll go from there. So Vaughn, how you doing over there, buddy? Doing well, man. Uh, first of all, I'm gonna say it's good to meet you guys on, besides being on social media and the internet or whatever. So just wanted to say what's up to you guys. Love the work that you're doing with this podcast. Um, my name is Vaughn. All right, my name is Vaughn Etienne. Um, with the NYPD, um, as Frank mentioned, uh, this is my 19th year with the NYPD. I came on the class of uh, uh, class of 2001, so the 9/11 class. Um, that's it. Right now, I'm a detective. I work on uh, Staten Island. There you go. Thanks right. for your service, man. And we'll, we'll, we're going to hit that once we uh, uh, dive in a little bit before your life pre NYPD. We kind of want to see where where'd you grow up, like uh, how was high school for you? Any high school sports? Was weightlifting in your life then in high school or kind of bring me back to Vaughn in high school? Sure. So I went to Erasmus Hall High School in uh, Flatbush. Um, Brooklyn. Yeah. Grew up in Brooklyn. Grew up in, grew up in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Um, came to this country in 79 from the uh, Caribbean nation of Grenada. Uh, wow. Parents moved us up here. Uh, went to junior high school, high school in Flatbush. Like I said, I was a Erasmus Hall High School alumnus. Um, in high school, I was kind of the only sports I really actively participated in besides track and field in the off season, just to stay in shape, was gymnastics. I was actually um, pretty a pretty decent gymnast in my high school days. Um, okay. So. Weightlifting wasn't really part of it for me at that point. It was just uh, all the calisthenics, body weights, body weight movements, et cetera, just to learn how to do the gymnastics moves requires a lot of strength, a lot of upper body strength. And as a result of that training, I actually ended up dislocating my left shoulder um, doing the still rings. And to get, re to get that shoulder rehabbed is when a doctor first uh, sold me on the idea of you got to get into the gym, you got to strengthen the muscles around that joint in order to promote better strength and healing also to keep the shoulder from popping out of the joint every time you sneeze which was <laughs> which was an annoying thing of a, i don't know if anyone's ever dislocated their shoulder but every now and again you do the wrong thing and that shoulder just pops out of joint you gotta you know like the movies you gotta get somebody to jam it in there you gotta ram it into a wall or something and that started becoming annoying so um Last year or so of high school, um, I started doing some lightweight training, just some upper body stuff. And uh, college, uh, I went to Brooklyn College. So right down the street from Erasmus Hall. Um, didn't do any sports or any activities, any athletics in, in college. Um, I was one of these guys, I, I worked you know, through college. I had to work my way through school. You know, So it was either I was uh, going to classes in the evening, doing a, a day job as a, a, le a legal clerk for um, an attorney uh, downtown Brooklyn. Um, also doing political work at the time. Um, I started off doing political work really early in life, around 16 years old, um, campaign staffer, handing out flyers, collecting signatures to get uh, candidates on a, on a ballot, challenging signatures in the Board of Elections. Um, my very first Board of Elections supervisor was actually, is actually the current Attorney General, Tish James. 
Um, we called her Tish. Her name is Letitia James. We called her Tish. Um, I've worked with state senators, John Sampson. Um, I've, 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 at Congressman Ed Towns. I've worked on so many campaigns for so many candidates um, throughout my late teens and uh, mid-20s that I couldn't even name them all. Um, it, was, it was part of what I did as my job, at my job at, at the law firm. So, and besides that, I was going to school. I was on track actually to get out of, get out of college, go to law school. I was already guaranteed a job as an attorney in, from the law firm I worked with, um, the, the managing partner there, um, a very good friend and mentor to this very day, he was like, you're gonna, you're gonna get out of school, you're gonna go to law school, you're gonna come here, you're gonna work for us. He was like, for 10 years, you're gonna be managing the place when, when I retire. Um, this was right around 1999, then the tech bubble burst. You know, I'm 45, so like we're, I'm dating myself, but this is 1999, mm. uh, the tech bubble, tech bubble burst, and you know, the economy went to shit, similar to how it did in 2008. And I was like, fuck that. I was like, I'm, I'm taking, I, I was already on the MIPD list. So I was like, nope, I'm gonna get me a civil service job. I was like, my dad, my, hey, listen, I have family in law enforcement already. My dad was a police officer, police constable back in the Caribbean. My, my grandfather was a warden of prisons. And it was actually something, I, I actually had a couple of mentors previous to, to my work with, um, the law firm who were also um, officers in NYPD. So I just said, you know what? Civil service sounds good and police is a noble, being a police officer is a noble career. It's something I think I can easily see me fitting into more than being behind a, a desk nine to five anyway. So, you know, came on the job in 2001. Here I am. Oof. Damn, Jay, what do you think about that, man? You want to talk about having a plan B and everything mapped out, man? That was a perfect story. Of, I visioned everything. I even visioned Vaughn sneezing and dislocating his shoulder for the 15th <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it, just, uh, it seems like he's a very calculated guy. Um, you know, uh, being a lawyer, it's like, it's like, like if you think about it, it's more of a prestigious sounding job, right, versus a officer so I, I know it might have been kind of a like like was it a bit of a struggle to kind of say all right well I'm going to go from this lawyer aspect bill to being a police officer um or was it just an easy transition I think it was an easy transition for me because the the, the way I've seen police officers at least the ones that I kind of had um, more access to or the ones that I kind of had in the mentorship world where they were very community-based. We're talking about the age of the CPOP officers, you know, when you have your CPOP beat and you would take care of people on your post, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it, to me, it all, it, it, all, it all came back to service, basically. You are, right. you are providing service to a community who, who kind of needs that service, whether it's in a courtroom, um, taking care of uh, wills in the states, real estate, whatever that an attorney would do as a police officer, there's also a, a, a service-oriented kind of path that you kind of follow as well. You know, you're, you're taking care of people, helping people out on an everyday basis. You're addressing the very real, the very real instances of, of crime in communities, um, making sure um, people have basic order in order to fulfill themselves as human beings. Like you, you can't do anything without law enforcement, despite popular, despite popular notions, you know, yeah. 
uh, with, without law and order and the ability to kind of make yourself into uh, a proper person in society, you know, all this is for nothing. You can't, you can't, you, have, you, you need the basics. You need food, clothing, shelter. You need, you need stability. You need peace. And from those things stem the greater things that this country is able to afford us. So without the basics, such as law and order, I feel like, you know, none of it is going to amount to anything. So transitioning into police work as a, as a means to help the community just seemed like a natural thing to me. So, right, so the easy transition was smooth. Um, I too come from a family of law enforcement. Um, it was just a natural progression for me, either military or law enforcement. Um, and I was actually en route to becoming uh, part of the armed services, but NYPD called me first. So that's how my transition came into play. So it's very interesting to, to hear somebody who had a, you know, pretty much a foot in the door and in, in, in law and, you know, took this route. So. And you actually, the class that you got in is a very interesting class because you guys were actually used, right, during the whole 9-11 situation? Oh, yeah. They put us out as gray shirts um, without, mm -hmm. without, our, without our guns or shields. We are um, put on foot posts to kind of just supplement the, the manpower. So whether it was directing traffic, checking IDs before people got into secure checkpoints, or just being a body on a foot post, you, know you guys know how it is. Um, we which, we which I learned very early. Um, if you see OCCB or DB on the collar brass, within two hours, you're going to be alone. <laughs> That's one thing I learned <laughs> in the academy, you know? So, so yeah, we got thrown out there pretty early and it just, it, it helped us a lot because we, 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 you know, being in the academy, what they teach you, what the job is going to be and be actually just even being out there on a foot post and your expectations, your roles, your the authority you have to kind of, do things, it's, it's kind of an eye opener. And we got that very early. So it was, it was, it was very helpful. Yeah, yeah. So when you went through the academy, it was what, nine months? Or was it, it, it was nine months back then, right? For, uh, it was a nine month academy class, yeah. Yeah. I mean, now is, is that because of 9-11 or is that just how it always was? Um, uh, it, used to be, it used to be nine months, right? That's how it was. It, I, it used to be nine months. Let me see. I don't, it, it, I think it was extended a month or two. It was supposed to be, I think it was supposed to be six, but it got extended to nine because of 9-11. But I know previous academy classes, this, this six-month academy thing is just a recent phenomenon. It used to be longer than that. It used to be just about yeah, nine months for everyone. Yeah. yeah, then from the academy, you used to go into um, um, NSU uh, detail, neighborhood, neighborhood Stabilization Unit, um, and then go to patrol from, from that. But... Um, yeah, Academy used to be nine months, and then ours was the last one that was actually nine months because then the impact classes came out right after that. I'm a, I'm a product of the impact, impact veterans, era. impact vet. Yeah, impact vet. Yeah, yeah I got to get that hat, man. I you got somebody that. with that hat one day, and I got to get that yeah, hat. Yeah, that hat is dope. I'm even jealous about that, man. Yeah. Impact guys got thrown, got thrown right into the fire. You know? Oh, man, baptism by fire, dude. I, Legit, they just gave you a map, right? And you say, listen, post, <laughs> yep. figure it out, and get there. And yep. That was that. And, you know, you had to learn on the fly. Yeah. It's a good way to, to learn the job. I learned that. So um, after the academy, Vaughn, where did uh, where'd you end up getting uh, sent to? What was your lucky draw, pick, draw the pick? 
or pick where, up where I where I grew up. I got I got sent to the seven zero. I grew up in the six seven and close to the border of the seven zero, and I got uh, assigned to the seven zero. I I picked the seven zero. They were like, "Do you want to go to the seven zero?" They were like, "Sure, go ahead." So I ended up getting my first pick. <laughs> yeah, I ended up getting my first pick. You know, because once again, I wanted to serve the community I grew up in. Because like I said, it was always about, it has always been about service to me. You know, helping, you know, I'm from the, I'm from the Caribbean. Just Flatbushies, Flatbush is a very predominant, predominantly Caribbean um, area. And so I wanted to make sure that I was an officer who understood the ways of the people that I, I was serving. And I, made, and I knew that I was there to do exactly that, to serve people and make life better for them. So I ended up in the 7 up. And I have a question about the Caribbean. What's, was there a specific island your family is from? Yeah, Grenada. Okay. Grenada, the, the one that the U.S. invaded in uh, 1983. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, we, we were kind of, the, the Marines invaded us. Heartbreak Ridge, that movie. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's, yeah, the, big that. that. that's the big invasion scene right there in Grenada. Um, you, you were born there? Born there, yeah. I, I moved here when I was uh, three and a half, four years Just old. The, yeah. November of 79, yeah. Damn, that's a wild story, man, and it's a, uh, it's really cool to see to see that journey. I'm, I'm glad. So far, I'm definitely enjoying this. Um, you're painting a, a great picture. Uh, it's funny because I went to a, I went to Anguilla back years back, and their gun laws are crazy. As in, the cops over there don't even carry guns, and for every time you're found with CPW with a gun collar, like if you get arrested for a gun collar, mm-hmm. it's automatic five years, and every bullet. In, in the uh, magazine and then or in the chamber as well is an extra year, which is insane. That's crazy. Oh wow, that's okay, crazy. You, like, you know, Angela is a really small, uh, like yeah. island, right? Like three mile. I think it's three miles by sixteen miles, something like that, or sixteen by three. I'm getting that wrong, but it was just, it was just wild. It's uh, I was able to. We were stay at the place where uh, Rick Ross shot. Uh, what is that? Dice pineapples or whatever. That's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the yeah, bachelor, yeah. it was really cool. But anyway, sorry. I just wanted to hit on that. So uh, to throw you, so, all right, so throw it back. So your first pick of uh, 2001 Academy was a 7-0. So Vaughn gets drafted to the 7-0, goes to the yep. 7-0. And uh, take us from there. What's, uh, you like it, you don't like it. You kind of wish you were a lawyer. You kind of say, I'm glad I came. Kind of take us through the mind of that. Oh, no, I was, I was glad I came. I had fun being a cop in the 7-0 patrol. Um, and my partner, my, part, my partner and I would always pick the busiest sector, which was Ida John, which was the north part of the 7-0 because we were, I, you know, I was a 4-12 to 12 cop. I, I did like a year at midnight tonight. I hated it. So I went to 4-12s. Four, four and um, I had a, had a steady partner. And we tried to keep the sector as steady as we can, sector Ida John. Um, we, we backed up everyone on every priority job. You know, we were ripping and running to the point where after about a year and a half, um, we got drafted to SNU. It wasn't really that much of an ask. It was like, you, you guys do your thing. You guys are coming to SNU. It's like, okay, so now I'm in SNU. Which for those listening, the Street Narcotics Enforcement Unit. Yeah, I was about to say, you got you to gotta enlighten some of these people because they, they eradicated a lot of these units. So yep. you say some of these names, a lot of these guys aren't going to be familiar with it. So yep. you got to enlighten these people. So I was, we were in this, 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 this new unit was the precursor. Okay, so the, the steps, the, pro, the progress used to be patrol, snoo, or crime, or, or snoo, then crime, 
and then the squad or a specialized unit or not or narcotics or narcotics gang whatever but um when i was there we went into SNU and we were waiting we were waiting our time to go to anti-crime in the 7-0 um the anti-crime team was an excellent crime team um we were just waiting our time and then we got the opportunity my partner and i to go to brooklyn south borough crime Brooklyn South Borough Crime, this is right after, we're talking about now between three and five years after the unfortunate shooting of Amadou Diallo by the street crimes mm -hmm. unit. They disbanded the citywide street crime unit and they broke it down into borough crime units. So all of the boroughs of the city of New York had their own anti-crime unit. You couldn't call yourself street crime anymore. It was called borough crime. So we went to borough crime. We turned out of the old um, Brooklyn South task force building located close to Prospect Park. And now we had our run of all of Brooklyn South. Most, most of the times neighborhoods that required special attention because they had an uptick in some sort of index crime, which are the seven major crime categories. And they would assign our team to that precinct to address that particular um, condition. Most of the times we would be in what they called the corridor, which was a 6771 and most of the time we were there to address the conditions of gun violence. So, you know, go get guns. And so I did that for a while. Um, I did that till about 2006. I had a unfortunate run in with the job for which I was jammed up. Uh, I, so I spent a glorious year and nine months with the quartermaster, making more money than I ever did anywhere. <laughs> That's what, that was yeah, an eye opening experience. Yeah, it was an eye-opening experience for me. I was like, wait, I was putting my life at risk for, <laughs> for, for all of this time, yeah. and I could have made all this money yeah, delivering yeah. office furniture for like a year and nine months. So Yeah, I, 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 I never understood that. Mm -hmm. Guys were out there doing, like, you know, like ripping and running, and, you know, guys get jammed up, and then they put them in position. These guys are making hella cash. I yeah. was like, it's almost better to be over here, right? And then... Than out here in the street facing like legit danger. It's like, like yeah. a lot of the people are not understanding what you are actually doing. Like, because a lot of people listen to us that aren't cops. So uh, I just want people to know that where he was working was a, and, and during this time in New York, New York was jumping. Right. right. So exactly. gun violence and violence was like, was a thing. Okay. Yes. So I don't want people to think that, you know, you are here with your hands in your pocket. Now you are out here, you know, doing real police work and i think people kind of forget that because now you know a lot of the especially the newer guys you know um you know you got to have like 10 years or more to kind of understand the type of police work you were doing Absolutely. the, the, the new, newer guys are not going to understand you know if you don't got one frank you got a hash mark or what i just i got i, I just got one hash mark baby all right i'm on the board okay, right. so, so, <laughs> i got three right so so all the all the stuff he's talking about um, I, I was hearing from like my uncle, you know, my cousins were on the job. So I was hearing about all of this in New York. So this, was, this is what kind of like listening to your story really reminds a lot, reminds me a lot of myself. Um, you're just a little bit older than me. I'm, I'm 37. So it's like I have, I have cousins your age. So um, I just remember my cousin was in the, was in the 9-11 class and he was, he was fresh out of the military and got to that 9-11 class and he worked in the Bronx. Uh, he was in um, TSA 7 when he got out. Okay. And, you know, he was just telling me all of these stories and, and, and how like, New York was busy. It was a very busy place. 
And, you know, I was hearing the stories of like snoo and anti-crime and street crime. I was hearing about all of that. So uh, as a young kid trying to, you know, figure out where his career path was going to be, I was excited to, to become a police officer by hearing these stories from my cousin and my, you know, my uncle and my dad, you know, all these guys telling me these stories. So like hearing you talk about it really strikes up something within me because our stories are very, very, very similar. I'm the son of, of two immigrants. You know, my parents are from Honduras, Central America. Okay. So, it, you know, my dad came here, uh, joined the military, and then got into law enforcement. Right. So it's like very, it's, we're very similar, just from two different parts, you know, but it's almost the same story. So it, 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 it's striking, um, like, feelings within me because it's like, all right, man, somebody that, that, that I don't know pretty much has the same story as me, and it's uncanny how similar it is. That's and great. my career path was almost the same thing as yours. Just not right. as I didn't spend that much time in NYPD, but mm-hmm. I pretty much did the same thing in my in, in my respective department. But you know, just hearing your story kind of gets me like revved up. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm getting kind of hyped up thinking about it. I I haven't um really thought about it that much um in 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 recent memory. And just talking about it was like wow, like that was that was some stuff. I actually, you know, I actually was I was actually the real police for quite a time. Yeah, yeah, because you have to think about it now. Like police work is is not is not going to be the same, and I think you are part of that 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 era, like the last of the Mohicans. Because if you don't have like twenty on, actually fifteen to twenty plus, right? right. You, you don't really understand what what was really out there and what we were really doing on the street. Right. And then you worked in a part of New York that needed it, and that people actually appreciated the work that you guys were doing. Absolutely, so, they did. And to, you know, I tip my hat off to you for that part of your career and like the things that you were doing out there because that is not for the weak hearted man. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. Amen. To paint that picture, uh, and this is what I was told, and you guys can agree with me or not, as in 15 years ago, the, there was not even enough manpower. There's no response autos. There's none of this. There was two or three sector cars out. Um, everyone mm-hmm. was on a shooting post, a hospital, a crime scene because it was mm-hmm. so busy. And mm-hmm. if, if Vaughn was in, you said, what was it, Ida John? Ida John, yeah. Ida John, and, and Jay was uh, Adam Boy Charlie, you know. Yeah. Adam, Boy, Adam Boy Charlie's holding 10 jobs, and Vaughn is just like, all right, put them on my queue so they can take me on, stuff like that. Like, that, it was all about getting the jobs, and it was real. It was man. It was, it was not a lot of rest. So I, I just wanted to uh, put that out there. And, yeah, Vaughn, it's funny you say that because a lot of people that come on the show, they, you know, the labyrinth is your mind and we really go deep back into your mind, man. And you pull things out that you might have not really thought about. And sometimes it can make you think a little more about in a positive way of how far you came and uh, the challenges and everything you, you went through. Be like, wow, you know, we're right here right now, even though we're not in person, we're all in the same setting right now and really able to, to feel, you know, kind of what, what uh, our guests went through or their experience. So it's, it's really awesome. Um, so, after the seven zero, um, well, you were in snow. Didn't you? Did you go to crime? No, um, we we got we got picked up and we went to borough crime instead. Right, you told so me that. Right. Okay. anti crime. Yeah. Then I went to the quartermaster. Um, then right, right. once I got out of the quartermaster, I went to Brooklyn North, and I ended up in the A one, okay. which is right next. Uh, you guys know the A one, right next between the seven nine, um, seven seven, and the eight three. Um, little slice, little triangle shape um, command. It's bedside basically. Um, mm-hmm. 
and this was bedside pre-gentrification. Well, wow, so, I was to say that. This sounds like it was pre-gentrification bedside because bedside looks a lot different now a than whole it did lot different. years back. Yes. A whole lot oh. different. And, and once again, I'm, I'm happy. Sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to cut you off. But I don't want to miss. I don't want to miss this question. I want to go back sure. to when you got jammed up. I don't want you to talk about why you got jammed up. I want to mm -hmm. say, did your mind change? Um, did your mind change as as a cop and as a as a person as a man? Did your mind change as in uh, the job did this to me, or I learned from whatever happened, or it didn't really bother you as much? Some guys still get booted somewhere across the the, the map, and then it'll affect the rest of their career. You know what I mean? Like we had Aaron, we had Aaron Sergeant Loman on here. Yeah, he yeah, yeah, yeah. Jammed up, and he was in the tombs. I think it was, and uh, it changed him for the better. You know, it, it made him not want to ever go back and learn from some of the whatever he went through. But it it didn't really. He used that as like a, I'm going out there and and doing my thing, and I'll show you type of deal. You know. Well, in in, in many respects, it did exactly that to me. Um, professionally. Um, I'm not going to go into deep, in great detail. Maybe we, we can in another podcast yeah, okay. or whatever. Why yeah, I, I, don't, I don't want you to do that at all. Yeah, I just want your after. It had nothing to do with my professional conduct. That was the thing, you know. So, career-wise, the only thing it did tell me was I, I felt kind of wow. I felt like I could have got a benefit of the doubt because if you would have weighed the totality of the circumstances that led to me getting jammed up, if I would have just gotten the benefit of the doubt or a chance to kind of prove myself to the job it never would have wound up being that way but you know sometimes you're not one of the you're not one of the fortunate ones and sometimes you know you kind of have to prove yourself ultimately which i did i'm still here but it did change my mindset in in terms of okay you give so much to the job and if you're going to give to the job if you're going to volunteer for these details if you're going to extend yourself beyond the call of duty if you're not just going to do the bare minimum, but you're going to go above and beyond, do so with the understanding that when push comes to shove, the job may not return that favor to you. So yep. do it because you're, you're self-motivated. Do it because you believe in the job you're doing. Do it because you have, even, even some guys, they do it for the money, you know, for overtime or whatever. Do it for career advancement. Have a purpose for doing it and don't expect yeah. anything back from the job because that disappointment will make you bitter when yeah. the job doesn't return it to you. So I agree that, with you 1000%, my man. And you, so you hit the nail on the head with that right here. Yeah, Absolutely. that's definitely one thing I learned for sure. Um, and, I also, and I also learned um, that when you get jammed up, just pay attention to the people who still, you know, on the job that still kind of mess with you because you kind of become a pariah, you know how it is. You get jammed up, next thing you know, you know, people stop checking for you people rumors start spreading you know yeah right all, yeah. The, all, all this other stuff so you know it, it, that's just like i guess in life in general you just kind of have to make sure that the people who still rock with you um job wise you know that you kind of return the favor to them and you kind of make sure that you keep that connection because you know if they're still going to rock with you in spite of all this nonsense then they're they're worth they're worth keeping around and keeping a, a solid relationship with um yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. And then, you know, career moved on after that, you know, life goes on and you just got to decide whether you're going to be, become a zero and just be like, screw this, I ain't doing nothing. Or if you're going to be like, all right, time to get back in the game and do what, you know, these the people of the city of New York pay me to do. Yeah, that's usually like a turning point in people's career. Um, like I got jammed up in 13 and, um, you know, it was the same thing. It's like, you know, I, I didn't want to be bitter. And I knew like, I was one of those guys, you know, that went above and beyond. And um, 
a veteran guy told me, he was like, listen, man, uh, how you respond to this will probably dictate how the rest of your career is going. Yeah. And he couldn't, he couldn't have been more right. I just remember like being super angry that, that, that I got jammed up and I got kicked out of the unit. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to shut down. I'm just going to like not do nothing. And, you know, I think he heard me or he saw my body language and he's like, bro, that's the worst thing you can do because that's what they want you to do. They want you to become bitter and they want you to shut down. So they give, so you're giving them more reason for them to, you're giving them more, uh, more fuel for the fire. So like your help, you're not helping your case if you're going to go and, you know, walk around with your arms folded and act like a little kid. You got to respond like an adult and, you know, you got to put your big boy britches on and go out there and get after it. So it's like, I, I, I took the time to, to slow things up and say, all right, I know they're not going to reciprocate what I did for the job because of X, Y, and Z, but I'm still going to continue to be the same guy I was. And it's very hard to stay on that path. It is. So it's tough, man. Cause I, I just remember like, I was so bitter. I was super bitter. And I was like, this yeah. ain't me though. But like me being a bitter person is not the type of person that I am. And it's I noticed not. that, I, you know, I got in my feelings and I was like, this ain't me, man. So I got back to it. Kudos to you for, for, you know, kind of putting that in perspective. It took a while because, like, the the, the bitterness didn't kind of ease up for a couple of years, you know, because it's you just, you think about it and it kind of eats at you and you just get so angry about it. But then it reminds me of a saying, it's like, anger and bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the person you hate to die. It's not not how it happens. You're just kissing yourself. You're killing yourself, you Mm -hmm. know? So it took me a while to let go of the bitterness and to kind of jump back into the game. Uh, like two years after I was jammed up, well, mostly also because like when you get, they restore you to full duty, they, first of all, I was on level three probation for a year. Level three probation is terminal probation. That means if you get into some serious shit, they're going to fire you straight up. Mm-hmm. Um, after level three probation for a year, I went on level two probation for a year, which was 18 months, well, sorry, for 18 months. Level two is a step below level three where you're still being monitored, your activity, you know, if you really get in trouble, they're not trying to hear it. So for like 18 months, uh, a year and six months afterwards, I was kind of in a position where I couldn't go above and beyond. But then I got, I got the call from um, the priest at SOL to kind of step up. He gave me the opportunity. He was like, listen, I, you got a lot of time. You're an experienced anti-crime guy. You were a new guy. He was like, if you, you want to come to this crime team and kind of help us out because we need it. There's a lot of guns out here. We could use, we could use your knowledge and your experience. And I could have sat back and been like, you know what, for what? Yeah. yeah. But you, like you said, you, you got to put your big boy britches on. And I was like, all right, let's give us another shot. And then I started doing anti-crime in the A1 for a while. And it, then, in the past now, bro. Yeah, man. In the past. No, that I'm jersey really in the Raptors right now. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm really glad. I'm really glad you that you you hit on that. That was uh, Jay said he hit the nail on the head, and that was beautiful. I couldn't have said it better, man. And I love that quote about the poison. I'm yeah, gonna, man. I might have you got to keep things like that in your head, you know, I sometimes. That. I quote that from Big Vaughn. Um, so the 8-1, uh, and it was good. You enjoyed it? Man, we were, we were, we were, we were setting record. Individually, we were always between the midnight crime team and the day crime team. We were always challenging each other. Our gun, our gun board was stupid. Our gun board was ridiculous. 
we we were trying we always wanted to make sure that we were top five individual as individuals among the top five every year for gun collars and we try to make sure we were definitely in the top three as a team from gun, gun collars every year and we definitely did that um there was so many guns in bed stock Be, before people were able to sit down and sip their wine and have their cheeses mm -hmm. and overpaid for these uh, brownstone apartments. Bed-Stuy was Bed-Stuy on the Biggie Smalls and Jay-Z. Yeah. I have to say yeah. anymore, you know? Yeah. So before, before Bed-Stuy became the gentrified, you know, civil, civil place it was, it, it, it took a bit of cleaning up for, not only for um, the, 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 to the gentrifiers and the new New Yorkers, but for the people who lived there who there, yeah. their, their quality of life, like the, you know, the, the, the shootings, the drugs, the gangs, you know, some of them still, still are very active in that part of um, Brooklyn, becoming more and more active lately. But, you know, we had to quash all of that, and you know, as it, it, it took some, it took some doing because even the, the precinct I was in, we were, um, you guys remember the whole Adrian School Craft scandal? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I was in that. That's the precinct I was from. I, I was me and me and Adrian Schoolcraft used to exchange bitter war stories in, in in the lounge downstairs about getting jammed up and stuff. And the whole time I didn't know, but he was plotting. He was making copies of complaint reports and showing how the complaints would be downgraded from a major crime to a minor crime to kind of fudge mm -hmm. the numbers. And you know, um, I, I, I kind of went through things in, in the precinct. Then I mean, I was I was there where um, the commanding officer. Um, he came under fire because they said some of his tactics for getting guys off the streets were a little too heavy handed. Um, he, he knew, first of all, I don't know if anybody remembers him. His name is, uh, uh, Moriello. Um, this guy had a mind like a steel trap. If you were an active perp in that command, he knew you, he knew when you got out of jail, he knew your baby mama, he knew your brother, mother, father, and cousins. He knew that you were not supposed yep. to be on this particular street corner because your cause cause your crew is beefing with this crew. And if you're there at this time, you're up to no good, bring him into the station house. Like it wasn't out of malice. It wasn't out of That's called good racism. police work. It exactly. Because it didn't That's it didn't matter what police. color you were. If you were not a good he he knew your entire rap sheet just by seeing you. Yep. He, this guy used to be driving in from work. And if he saw you on the corner, he's gonna stop. He's, he always had his radio. He would call the sector over and be like, that guy's got an eye card for this, that, and the third. He needs to go or whatever. Yeah. The people in the community, they, it was two ways with him. They either loved him or they hated or him. Or hated him. Yeah, you know? But lo and, behold, like that. lo and behold, after that little stint in anti-crime, you know, the 8179, that whole area became you know, a lovely place where there's nice restaurants and little boutique shops. And like I said, you could, you could go buy wine and cheese and all these, you know, thanks, nice places. Thanks now. to you guys, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, you, you guys know. keeping the street safe so they could come and kind of do that. Exactly. Lord knows that wasn't a place you could do that back in the day. No, sir. It is now. Man. Thank God. <laughs> What street was that? Is it Fulton Street? Is that over there? Fulton or? Street. So, yeah, we're talking about Fulton Street. We're talking about, Bed they call Bed-Stuy because the boundaries of Bedford-Stuyvesant Bedford are from Bedford Avenue to Stuyvesant Avenue. That's why they call it Bed-Stuy. So that's the geographical area contains. But we're talking Fulton Street, Bainbridge, Decatur Street. Um, we're talking, we're talking, um, 
Tompkins, we're talking um, Marcus Garvey, we're talking Gates Avenue, we're talking all these all these areas, you know. And that's where you couple, grew up, and that's all where no, you grew I, up. I, no, actually, no, I grew up in Flatbush. Okay. I grew up in Flatbush, Church Avenue, the, the 90s, the, the East 30s, the East 40s, the East 50s. So that, and I'll tell you what, when, when I was a kid growing up in Flatbush, we knew two, two places you didn't go, Bed-Stuy, Brownsville, you don't belong there. Don't go yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? I wanted no part of Brooklyn when I was a kid. No <laughs> See, oh yeah, and if I'm you're a, a Brooklyn kid. kid, you're not. Yeah, if you're if you're a Brooklyn kid, you're not going. I'm, you're not going to catch me on East Tremont or Gun Hill Road for what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <You know? laughs> and the people in that community, if you were there, if you were there in the South Bronx, or they know that you, they know that you're not, you're you're not from there, right? Of course, a hundred percent. In a second, yeah. You walk through, man. This yeah, it's is a whole different demeanor. Projects. Yeah. You're, you're done. You're, every you're every borough has its own swag. So right. like, you yeah. walk through. You know, by the way you dress, by the way you walk, they'll tell oh, this dude ain't from around here. So, um, yeah, New York's New York's different like that, man. Every every borough has its own twist Absolutely. to how people walk, talk, and look. You know, so I could I could have told Jay was from from uptown just with way his swag, the way his hat, like his style. You look at his face. Look, I was like, oh, this is definitely an uptown dude. You look at it. I look at your IG. I'm like, yeah, he's definitely an uptown dude. Like. I think Jay would like this question because well, when I was in high school, I mean, uh, I was a huge Biggie fan and, you know, watching all the movies and I only know Fulton because of the movie and then read up on it before I was on the job and everything mm-hmm. like that. Take, um, like when Biggie Smalls, uh, he got uh, murdered uh, out in Cali, what was the demeanor like? Were you around for the funeral or everything in the streets and everything and stuff like that, like the community, like how much of a impact like music I feel like music back then had way more of a, a different impact than it does now. That's just my opinion. I'm not too sure if you agree or kind of, uh, kind of how like, like someone like a big talent, like this, I mean, this is Biggie small, like a hometown hero from Brooklyn, you know what I mean? Or you got Jenny on the block from the Bronx and stuff like that. You know, I feel like it's a big, it was, it was a big thing. Yeah. Listen, when big, when Biggie got, got killed, first of all, we're talking the height of the East coast, West coast beef. And then what Biggie meant to Brooklyn, you know, people people were proud to say they were from Brooklyn. People were proud to say they were from Bed-Stuy. I mean, he just, he was, I don't know. I think you're right. I think the impact that artists had on people steeped very deeply into the culture, um, I think it's more of a superficial kind of um, association people have with music. Nowadays, I think, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's because of the lyrical content, the, 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 the total cultural significance or whatever, but definitely when, when Biggie died, he was a big part of the culture that kind of died. And his, um, I, I, it's, you could Google it or you could put it up on YouTube. Just look up Biggie's um, funeral service or whatever. Oh, I mean, yeah. they, st- they, started, they started playing one of his songs and that whole street just came Erupted. Erupted. Something about Brooklyn, though. Yeah, juicy, yeah. Something about Brooklyn, though, because Pop Smoke with his funeral was the same thing. Streets were flooded. It's something about Brooklyn. Like, Brooklynites are super proud of their their Brooklyn people. And it's like, when, like, I saw the footage of Pop Smoke's, like, you know, his his procession. I was like, everybody was out there. Yeah, I'm just talking about everybody was out there. So it's it's something about Brooklyn uh, that that because you don't really hear the Bronx or the Queens 
or Queens people doing things like that. There's something about Brooklyn. That's why I stay out of Brooklyn. I don't mess with Brooklyn. <laughs> I don't want no parts of Brooklyn. We used to, I played for the NYPD football team. I, the only time I used to go to Brooklyn was right. to, go, uh, to, to go practice out there in Erasmus. Other than that, I wasn't messing around in Brooklyn. Oh, you used to go out I've to, to the Barclays a handful of times. Yeah. Okay, okay. I, I went to the Barclays maybe once or twice. And other than that, I don't go to Brooklyn. Hmm. I'll stay out of there. I'm my borough. Definitely, definitely a, a passionate place. And that, that passion can, yeah. can go two ways. You know what I'm saying? Now we're seeing a lot of the worst parts of that passion play itself out because of all of the socioeconomic, cultural, political factors that play out there. But that passion is still there. You know, unfortunately, that... Sometimes it, it, it plays itself out in, in negative ways, but you have the instances where you see like people's pride and their passion for Brooklyn plays itself out in ways that you're just like, man, this place is different. Thousand percent. Shout out to Brooklyn. <laughs> where, Brooklyn where, where Brooklyn at? Uh -huh. The so take us a little bit through uh, when you got promoted, man. How how was that feeling and, and kind of the unit that you got into, or did you okay. get promoted? In, the, in the, the crime team you were in or? No, no, actually what happened was, all right, so now as a result of me being jammed up and at the time the commissioner was Ray Kelly. Um, Ray Kelly had his infamous blacklist, which was if you got jammed up, if you got put on Ray Kelly's radar or whatever, he would literally have, I've seen it because you, you're entitled to see your, your file twice a year. So I walked into my CEO's office. I was like, I'm gonna see my file. He was like, go talk to the ICO. I opened up my file in red ink Right when the papers that, that, that restored me to full duty in, in red ink stamped, do not transfer without the express written permission of the police commissioner. Kind of like, you know, if you watch a football game, it says do not reduplicate without the express of the NFL. Yeah. Like that was yeah. stamped in red on my file. So now I had applied for a couple of different units, um, uh, warrants and gang. And I was told, I got phone calls both times. I said, listen, with your pedigree, we would love to take you we can't touch you and i was like why they was like they was like no go bro you're on the blacklist so mm. kelly left kelly left office bratton came in and on the department intranet um there was literally an article written by police commissioner bratton that says if you were sidelined if you ran afoul of the job if you had any sort of issues with the job now was the time to get back in the game we need all hands on deck we need all our experience. We need our brain trust back. So I'm, I'm inviting you as a police commissioner to put in for those units, put in for those details. Like that, it, that had, because I felt like I was going to be stuck in, in a precinct crime forever unless I took, it, took a test to get promoted. I was like, okay, well, this is where my career is going to be. I'm going to be like a 20-year a, a vet still doing anti-crime, you know? Mm -hmm. But I saw that. I saw that um, article written by the police commissioner and it lifted my spirits. So I said, you know what, I'm gonna put in for the squad. So I put in for the squad and um, I, got, I got picked up by the 7-3 squad. So I went, to, I went from Bed-Stuy to Brownsville, from the frying pan into the fire. And I got my shield there after 18 months in the 7-3 detective squad. Well, congrats to that, man. Talk about a journey, right? Yeah. Yeah, man. Trust me. I, I think that was I think that was the hardest earned shield in the history of the NYPD. <laughs> you know? So it was, I was fifteen. I was a veteran of fifteen years uh, when I got promoted. Uh, you you know? got into, and then you were then you got into 
uh, warrant and, and things like that? No, no, no. I never. Um, for, I, I applied, but they could, they wouldn't put me in. So warrants. Um, I warrants. I never got in. Um, but I was thankful to go to the squad because it was more right. gentlemen's work. And at that in that stage of my career, I about to say yeah. Man, you know what? Squad work said, is gentlemen's work here. Yeah. I, I just want to put on a suit, show up, sit at my desk, do my cases, show up at the crime, out there show up at the crime scenes yeah. with with the cup of coffee, like the hair bag in the movies, like, all right, what do you guys got? <laughs> Let me ask you a question, right? Um, with, with all the, like, the crime experience that you've had, right? At, at what point were you like, all right, I, I think I had enough of running around and, and like trying to do like proactive police work? Because you can only do that for so long. And then yeah, eventually you want to like turn it down just a bit. Like what, what year did it hit you? Like, I don't know how, how long I can do this for. Uh, 2013 to 2014. There was a period of time where my boss, shout out to him, um, Sergeant Eric Powers. He's uh, actually, right now, he is uh, a, a supervisor in the 8-1 precinct detective squad. And mm-hmm. he called me out on my bullshit. You know, like, I was, bro, I was showing up to work and I was so burnt out. I was just so just so overdoing this again and again. Listen, it was fun. We were getting a lot of guns off the street, but then we also get um, complaints. We were, you know, the whole going back and forth, back and forth the court, you know, getting into negative interactions with the community um, mm-hmm. over trying to, you know, trying to do your job. So it just started weighing on me. And some days I would just show up to work or we'd be driving in the car and like, I would just be zoned out. like. They'd be like, yo, did you see that? I'd be like, what? What? I was just like zoned out. He was he, he pulled me aside and he was like, bro, listen, your head's not in the game. What's going on? And we sat down, we had to heart to heart. I was like, bro, I was like, I think I'm just burnt out, man. I was like, I've been, you know, yeah, understand, man. I've been doing this for the vast majority of my career at this point. You know, I've been I've been either in snoo or anti-crime out of the it was about 13 years of my career at the time. I was like, I've been doing like snoo or anti-crime for like eight, nine years. I was like, a that's long a lot. Time. That's a long time. I was like, I'm burnt out. So at that stage, I felt like, like yeah, you know, just, I mean, because you have to understand a lot of your interactions, high stress interactions, because you're going after yeah. people with guns. You know what I'm saying? So you try to, you try to keep it as simple. You try to deescalate as much as you can. Um, I was always a guy, I, everything me was case law, case law, case law. One of my rights, mm-hmm. Ter- Terry versus Ohio, all the stop and frisk laws. Um, what what is my legal basis for stopping a person? How am I going to articulate the way I stop a person so that I try to minimize conflict? I was a very much by the book case law guy. If it wasn't if it wasn't in, in, in confines of case law on the law or whatever, I knew I didn't have authority, and I don't like losing a confrontation. If I don't have the legal authority yeah. to kind of win a confrontation, I'm, I'm I'd rather just not do it. So that's mm-hmm. kind of wears on you. It just kind of gets old, and like I said, I got burnt out. My boy called me out on my shit. And then at that point, I was like, you know what? It might be time to do something else. I always like to ask guys that, that have like that path, that were in these, in, these, in these units and they were very, very, very proactive. There's a short life, there's a short shelf life for that type of that piece work because it is a very, very stressful day-to-day thing to do for a prolonged period of time. Absolutely, and, it was. You know, I would love to see studies on that. Like, like, what's the shelf life of a of a guy? Well, now units don't exist anymore. But you know, most of the guys that I know, like, it was like a maybe a six year, seven maybe years. six. Oh, six maybe. years. You're, you're a crusty. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, coming to work. It's, just, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Man. I just because most guys they don't you know they'll it, you know they'll they'll spend five years and then somebody will pick them up to go somewhere else and then yeah. it, you know they're wearing a suit and a tie. So like that six seven year period I know is a stretch. Yeah, me- me- mentally and physically, I'm glad that that uh, your friend of yours actually looked out after you. And we need a lot more people on that that didn't push you to the edge, like not to the edge, but just push you to be like, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. I don't care. Just blah, blah, accountability. Blah. Just me, exactly. just me, like reassess, exactly. reassess things, and just you know. But it took, you know, like I said, thank you know, he's a very, he's a very, he's a very strong-willed. Like I'm not going to say, any, well, he's in your face person because we, oh my God, we got into. We yep. we got put on the radar for a while, but you know, oh, am I still no. here? No, we lost you for a second, but you're still here. Okay, but yeah, like like I said, it was his personality type that actually called me out on my shit and was like, "Yo, reassess things because you know you're not the same cop you were." So that's when I had to take a look and be like, "Shit, you know what? You're right, and this is why. And now I need to change things. Otherwise, I'm only gonna hurt myself." Hurt end up getting, you know, being a distraction to the team and ultimately to the people I'm supposed to be effective for, the people who pay me, the people of the city of New York, if I'm not effective for them, why am I here? Right. You know? uh, I'm really, I'm, I'm, we got like uh, 15 minutes left, but I'm really excited to see the journey, the story you just shared with us. And I, I know you um, want to, a bunch of, or I don't know how many, or a few bodybuilding competitions, uh, yeah. IFPB Pro. Take us through that journey of how you kind of hand, how you kind of juggle that with the job and everything, and how you the bodybuilding journey in general. And um, take us through the type of workouts you're doing, some of the show, like you know, what was the best moment of the, the your favorite show that you won, and uh, kind of how your nutrition's always been on the job and stuff like that. All right, so I, I started bodybuilding pretty early in my police career. I think um, my first competition was 2004, so I was uh, I had two years on the job. You know, a, a friend of mine, not a friend, a guy was a gym owner that I used to train at. Um, he competed. He said, hey, you want to come see a show? I went, I saw a show, and I was like, oh, I think I could do this. Um, so I just started, tra- I started training for my first competition in 2004. Um, I did really well in my first amateur competition, so having that success behind me, I thought, okay, I could take it to the next level. So I said, I did a couple of amateur level shows at the national level. Um, I got a pro card in 2010 and I competed as a pro for two years. Um, I was actually fortunate enough in 2011, I won two, my very first two pro shows and I competed at the Olympia actually that year in 2011, ended up competing at the Olympia. And uh, while doing all of that, mind you, while I'm doing anti-crime patrol, snoo. So bodybuilding itself was a completely second job for me because that's your, you have to pay so much attention to your nutrition on a daily basis. You have to go in there and do your, do your training sometimes twice a day. So, you know, um, it definitely kept me busy. It definitely get, it provided me with a lot of distractions from the job, stress, stress at work or whatever. Um, my favorite competition, I would have to say the Olympia. You know, I, 
it's always been a hobby for me, bodybuilding. I never expected it to become anything more than a hobby. I just thought this was going to be something I do on the side. And um, when I actually qualified for Olympia and stepped up on that stage, I was like, well, I probably should have quit bodybuilding that year because I was like, okay, I just reached the top. I, I don't care. Like <laughs> I placed 11th. I placed 11th, but I was like, you know what? I'm on the Olympia stage. I could probably, I could probably stop bodybuilding now, and I probably should have. Um, but I pushed it for another year, and then it just it didn't become worth the Even if I'm a pro bodybuilder now, so when I win a show or if I place in the top five, I'm getting a check. You know, so mm -hmm. like even now, winning money versus the time, money, and energy I put in from it, time away from the job, time away from family or whatever, it just the balance of it just wasn't there anymore. So I just kind of lost the passion for competing. But nutrition and training-wise, I still, you know, maintain that passion even now. You know, so I don't compete, but you know, I like I I have I have a coach I have a coaching business. I help people cops get themselves into shape, nutrition, training. Um, I run that business with my wife. You know, she handles the female side of it. I I, I do the guys, and so my passion transferred from competing into helping people achieve their nutrition and fitness goals. And while doing that, I still I'm in the gym. I still you know eat right because. One thing I, I never wanted was for this job to claim my physical and mental health. Your mental health, you have to struggle for every day on this job. Your physical health, if you ignore it, you'll get to a place on this job where I've seen guys on this job job that have heart attacks, aneurysms, yeah. strokes, yep. because they didn't take care of themselves physically. Not only that, but I was an anti-crime guy. You're, you're getting it in with, with, with perps sometimes. You're literally fighting for your life. Guy, Guys reaching yeah. for guns in their waistband, you know, poor, um, there's a cop in, uh, in uh, Brooklyn North got shot in the head. He lost a fight with a guy over a gun and I'm getting shot in the head in the lobby of a building, the vestibule, while his partner was outside looking through that glass door. He saw his partner get shot in the head. He saw the guy oh, reach. Man. Yeah, I, I forgot the cop's name. Um, shame on me for getting this guy's name. He was an anti-crime guy, but like, it just, it just was always very an important factor to me that you have to be able to handle yourself physically on this job. So that's another one of the things that kept me in the gym, kept me training, kept me, you know, focused on being able to handle myself. So all those things kind of integrated themselves. Yeah. Huge factor. People don't understand that. I'm just, you know, showing up, you got to be mentally and physically prepared for whatever the day throws you. So, yeah, you know that. Um, you preach that every day on your page. You you kind you yeah. personify that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's both that's of you guys, of as a matter of fact, and and especially Frank with the with with the mental and 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 and, and spiritual fitness. You know, you kind of personify the fact that you need to take care of yourself and you need to take care of each other, because this job will kind of drain you and kind of push you over the edge and into a lot of different things if you're not very very careful. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this job will eat you alive if you allow it to, um, you know, and I've seen it. I've seen it. I've had, I've lost friends to heart attack. Um, you know, guys end up having high blood pressure and, you know, because they didn't take care of themselves. And yeah. it, you know, it's a sad part of this job, but it's something that you can, you can change. You know, I try, I, I try to tell guys that all the time. You, you know, you have the ability to affect your life job shouldn't be you know the job yeah it's 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 part of it's part of the process but it shouldn't dominate how you perform as a human being so 
So you have to be considerate of people around you, like the people you work with, your family. You got to keep all those things in perspective. So when it starts to get a little bit out of hand, you got to be able to reel it back in and say, all right, I need to make sure that I'm taking care of me. So in turn, all these other people that rely on me That's um, exactly are right. good as well. That's exactly right. Right. And, um, yeah, the, the whole program and everything was, to, you know, the average age of a cop is 57, 58, you know, and that's, I don't want right. to be, another, I don't want to be another uh, statistic. I don't want anyone else to be that when, right. like Jay just said that you, and you said it too, Vaughn, you're in control of you, your life. You know, I always say if you're, your mind's running or anything, look down at your feet, man. That's where you are right now. I'm looking down at my feet. This is where I am. I'm, I'm nowhere else right now. This is the, there's no greater gift than the present. And, um, I don't want, you know, especially with all the, you know, you, 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 the, the heart attacks, the high blood pressure, the strokes, the suicides, the mental, um, the divorces, the drinking yeah. and all that stuff. So it yeah. all, it, it's, you know, it, it depends where you want to take it. And you're a great example of something happens. You, you, it's still up to you to go the, the path you wanted to, you know, um, the two paths, like the, the poem from Robert Frost, man, you know, the, the path, the, the, the path not taken, the path that's, that, that's created. So, you know, that's, I'm, I'm glad you, you, you brought that up. Um, and speaking about drinking, um, I, we always ask everyone this on the podcast and everything, your thoughts on drinking. Um, you just, I, I feel like you're a type of guy that just never really dabbled with it that much or kind of just. I, I never, I never did for a while, but now that, a gentleman of a certain age, I will enjoy a couple of fingers of scotch every now and again. But my, my tolerance is, is so low for it that it doesn't take much for me to just be able to, I, I, I sip, I don't drink, I enjoy, you know, but once again, everything in perspective and in moderation. And I'm, mm-hmm. I never was one to drink as a way to cope. So that's as, as long as you're not drinking to cope, then as long as you know, as long as they're all, there's a checklist of things that drinking should not affect. Any behavior should not affect. Once those negative behavior coping mechanisms start affecting the things on that checklist, um, that's when you need to reassess it. So I, I, fortunately, I've never, I've never had that issue. And the occasional, the occasional adult beverage I, I will enjoy, you know, some, I'm a Scotch guy, single malt. And you know, every now and again. Element's choice right there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm glad you brought that up about the checklist because it doesn't even have to be with drinking. Like, uh, for me, example, I, I know I can't do that. I know I can't just have one. So that's definitely just something I had to own up to and, and, and give and give that, you know, I'm powerless over it, you know. But it, can, it doesn't have to be alcohol. It could even be posting on social media. It could be gambling. It could be talking to right. girls. It could be talking to guys. It could yes. be, exactly. you know, social media uh, working out, you know, like if you're working out to a certain extent where it's messing with your mindset of, you know, um, you're torturing yourself or you're suffering, then you have to reevaluate. So I'm really uh, glad you brought that up, man. Um, uh, before we wrap up Vaughn, um, first I want to say thank you for coming on the show. I had a great time and really, uh, was a, definitely an eye opener for me as uh, like Jay said, I only got five years on the job. So it definitely was glad to hear a lot of positive from someone that's soon to uh, retire. Uh, but we just have a few more questions to oh. ask you to get the listeners to kind of see where your mind's at and, and go from there. Um, Let's go. 
if you have one meal to eat for the rest of your life every day, what's it going to be? Healthy chicken, or not healthy? Chicken, rice, avocados. Oh, man. Okay. I like that. See, I, I, I go with I, that. Yeah, a lot of guys, it's, when you start doing that for so long, you either just can't deal with it anymore, or you're just like, <laughs> oh, that's me, that's me. Yeah. So, yeah, you get your fats, your carbs, your protein in there, you're set, man. That's, that's uh, it. Meat, meathead shit. Fa fa favorite movie? <laughs> you had to pick one or two. Ah, uh, man, this is a movie, this, 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 I actually quotes from this movie got me kind of <laughs> in hot water during a, a, a trial one time, but my favorite yeah. movie has to be Training Day and Denzel Williams, yeah. a, a Training Day, bro. Quote it on the stand? Quote it on the stand. Quote it on the stand, because I posted Training Day quotes on my social media page and the defense attorney got a hold of it. <laughs> that wasn't a good look. <laughs> That, oh, that, that attorney did his homework, that's for sure. That's funny. Yeah, he, oh, man, how did he do his homework? Bro, he had my whole social media history, man. <laughs> he, put me, he put me on trial. I, you know what? At the end of the day, I told him, I was like, bro, if I ever get in trouble, I'm hiring you. <laughs> <laughs> I like that situation. Yeah, uh, it, it, you have a time machine. Me, you meet up with me and Jay, we're like, yo, we got a time machine. Go in there. You, you can go anywhere in time, one time. Where would you go? It could be. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago, 1600, 1700, any time, any time in, in history. Okay. Give me a couple of seconds to think about that one. Um, I've always been a big, like kind of medieval times, kind of like, I, I used to love reading stories about that when I was a kid, but like, you know, I figured I don't want to die of dysentery at the age of 33, so let's Let's fast forward that up a little bit. Um, I think the 70s was a, was a I, I was born in 75, but I mean like the, from 69 to about 77, I think in this country, we're talking a little bit past this whole civil rights thing in this country. So it's not as bad then. We're starting to, you know, come into more and more of a technological age, you know, put the politics and everything. I think the music, the disco, right, pre-hip hop, I think, you know, cocaine everywhere. <laughs> so I think, I, think, I, think, I think the 70s, so, you know, some of these Shaft movies the party era. like that. Yeah, right before Star that Wars is. came out and all that. I think, yeah. So I think the 70s, I, I, would, I would transport myself right to the middle um, in, 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 in the year I was born, 1975. That's where I would set the, the time machine dial to. Yeah, groovy. Yeah. Uh, one person to meet, uh, if they're dead or alive, who would you want to meet? Um, who would I want to meet? It would have to be somebody who did something just so, so it would have to be like a, a person who did something like a first, like something just so scary and ridiculous that like no one ever did it before. And so just to kind of be like, what were you thinking? So maybe, um, you know what, how about, I, I, I don't want to, it's not going to be one person, but one of the guys who, the first guys to land on the moon, you know what I'm saying? Oh, okay. Like, no one's, one. come, no one's coming for you. <laughs> where, where, if, if, if shit goes wrong, that's it, you're done. That's you it, know? you're done, yeah. So like, no man's you know, land legit. Yeah. Those are, like, people like that, people who did something like, even the guy who, like, you know, 
the first guy who went supersonic in, a, in an airplane or the first just guy people like that so that's the sort of person i can't I, I not an individual but the sort of person i'd be interested in meeting dead or alive mm. or guys like that that's like trailblazer yeah like brave first, like brave brave motherfuckers like who did anything <laughs> you right. know like i like that yeah that is definitely a first um favorite and fa- favorite artist music wise Bob Marley. 100% Ooh. Bob Marley. That's the first two for the show. No one's ever said Bob yeah. Marley. Yeah, 100% Bob Marley. He was, he was, he was, a, he was more than a music artist. Man, was, he transcended everything. Politics, music, religion, race, culture. Like, you got people right now in, in, in Germany and Switzerland right now that are like Rastafarians because of Bob Marley. Yes, because of Bob Marley, yeah. Yeah. Very you influential. Yeah, that's a person you can meet, man. Like, what? That's, yeah, I would. I would we, love to. I would love to sit down when I'm we, off the job and burn one down. You know, you can add that too. <laughs> when, when I'm retired, though, because because you can't meet Bob Marley and not smoke weed with him. Come on, <laughs> you're true. You know? uh, one one main workout movement to do forever, and then superset that with an, your favorite accessory movement. Um, so workout, main workout is like a compound movement: deadlift, bench, squat, overhead press, maybe. Uh, so deadlift, like that. deadlift, deadlift, 100%. And um, to, with with that, I would do deadlifts with a standard military press. Ooh, dumbbell or barbell? Um, let's military press with 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 with, with barbell. With sorry, with dumbbells, and definitely bar heavy ass barbell deadlifts. Just super set that together. It's just picking them up and throwing them up there. You know. There you go. That, that's Pick primal. It. It's primal. Straight, you know? straight meathead right yeah, that's there. that's it. Lightweight, baby. Ronnie Coleman. That's it. Straight meathead. I like it. That's it. <laughs> Jay, you got any questions? One or two for him? Or? Nah, man. I, he was pretty spot on with everything, man. I, I, think, uh, I think we covered all bases, bro. So there we go. Like episode it. episode four, uh, season three is in the books. Vaughn, man, uh, really interesting guy. And hopefully we get to meet you one day in person, get a training session in or something like that. And Absolutely. Your service. Shout to one of your Thanks events, you know? Yeah, that would be great, man. So so thank you, man. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, my name is Frank. You know where you can find me at reps underscore four underscore responders. Jay, where can they find you at? You can find me on Instagram at the real jumpman Jay. Vaughn, where, they can, where, where can they find you? Um, on Instagram at at fit number four duty fitness. All right, there we go. And I love what you're doing with that man with the, the that page and like you said, trying to help cops feel better and uh, get them into a training program. So thanks See, again man. for everything you do, man. And uh, stay safe out there, man. You're almost at the finish line. Almost there, bro. Love everything hey, man, you guys you do, service, man. Lo- love you. Thank love you, man. Appreciate you, you bro. Keep it up, man. Thank you, man. Thanks, thank you. Have a good day, man. All right. I'll see you. All right, bro. Be good, man.